just takes one person to change someone else's life. It took one person to open up and open, bring me into a community that could forever change my faith background and my children's faith background forever. And now I realize I'm that person for someone else. My name is Ashley Dirksen. I'm married to Cody Dirksen. My husband and I used to flip houses. We ended up finding a house that we wanted to live in. Um, so it was an acreage and we were working on flipping the house. Well, through no fault of our own, um, we ended up losing the property. Um, so we lost the property and we lost $20,000, um, as well as losing a house that we were expecting to live in. And I remembered praying, thinking, God, something needs to change. Like. I need help, I don't know what to do. I'm a young mom, I, I don't know what to do at this point. Literally, I would say about two weeks later, um, my boss at the time had given me a call and she's like, hey, um, you were just weighing on my mind. I have an opportunity um, with this business. Do you keep your options open? I'm like, yes, like not trying to be rude or anything, but yeah, I could definitely make more money. And she had no clue. She didn't even know we had moved. She didn't know we had lost that house. She had no clue about any of that. And so a group of people then started changing and affecting our lives. Um, and it wasn't so much that it was the business itself, if that makes sense, because you can fix someone's financial picture, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're really fixing them. And there was a whole lot more wrong with me back then than just needing to fix finances. We still run our business, which is fantastic. We do still work full-time jobs, but our business is something that we have found. Um, we like to call it our marketplace ministry because though you can help someone, and we do help people with their finances and different things like that and help them um, achieve what they want to achieve and actually help other people because that's something I found. I used to suffer from depression um, and that's something that I found is that when I'm actually focusing on helping other people, it doesn't give me time to focus on what's wrong with me in that moment so then I can actually go out and serve. And that's what we have found is serving people is really what makes us happy. Through that business, we've helped multiple people um, also become members of Zion, which is awesome. And so now we feel like this is, this is the calling I have is I meant to help other people reach that point and just honestly love people like Jesus loves. Like Jesus didn't throw stones and he didn't do all these other things that I kept thinking the church was doing in reality. Yeah, the church at that time was doing it, but that's not the church of today. The reason why we call it a marketplace ministry is because it doesn't matter if you know them or you don't know them, but there's people that you shop with like at the grocery store. Um, and if you are even just thinking when you're out and about of adding value to other people, and it's not like you can be like, hey, do you know Jesus? If you don't, you should. Um, it's not like that, but it is getting to know someone and being able to develop that relationship. Just loving on people, I think, is our biggest thing to help people understand, well, why are you like that? But it's just nice. It's nice to be able to help people that way and kind of get yourself out of the way. Hello, welcome to Sisterhood. My name is Jennifer Colby and I am the Director of Women's Ministry here at Zion. This year, we are exploring the, the idea, the topic of influence. Just how does God desire to use us to influence the world around us? What kind of influence do we have? And exactly where do we have it? In September, we, we looked at the story of Joseph and we talked about the influence we have with our families. We saw the faithfulness of God, 
We saw his kindness, his desire to pr produce fruit in the midst of our suffering, and we witnessed the power of his merciful character. We learned how these qualities are useful in our homes, that kindness and mercy start at home. If you missed it, I wanna encourage you to go back and watch it on our Facebook or YouTube pages. I want you to know that I think we could spend the entire year talking about our families. We just have so much influence there. You are an incredibly influential person to your family. But today we're, we're leaving the four walls of our homes and we're headed to a new area of influence and I'm calling it influence in your assignment. I'd like to define the word assignment real quick. Uh, your assignment is the place where God currently has you. It's that easy. The place could be the workplace, the place you volunteer, your kid's school, the grocery store. Sometimes it's a place you don't wanna be. The place where God has you on an assignment is the exact place where he desires to use you and the exact place where he has given you influence to do so. So I am beyond thrilled to tell you that our text tonight comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel being towards the, uh, towards the end of the Old Testament before Jesus' time on earth. It contains one of my very favorite Bible verses of all time, if we're allowed to have favorites, and that, which occurs in chapter 3. However, we only scratch the, the surface of that particular story. Instead, we will focus on what happens before the fiery furnace in chapter 3. We're going to begin in the beginning. But let me assure you, our text tonight is rich with so many wonderful things. I mean, it is chock full of the greatness of our God. Honestly, I'm just so stinking excited about it. So, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There is already a lot going on that we need to dive into. Sometimes it is so easy for us to gloss over these types of words because one, the names are really hard to say. Jehoiakim has three vowels in a row. Nebuchadnezzar has the name Chad in the middle, but it's not pronounced Nebuchadnezzar, although that would be a lot easier. Biblical names are hard to read and say, and so we often just save ourselves the trouble and skip them. And also, do, do these people and places have any relevance to our lives? I mean, do they even matter? And I'm here to tell you that yes, yes, it does. The placement of this story, the context of time, of this time, is very important to our understanding of these scriptures. And, and not only that, but sometimes it even makes the story more relatable to our lives. I first want you to understand the kind of king King Jehoiakim was. I want you to understand the kind of culture that the men we're about to meet were living in. So let me read to you 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 35 through 37. Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. In order to do so, he taxed the land and exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land according to their assessments. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as his fathers had done. So the land of Judah is in the third year of a reign of an evil king who taxed his people to pay his own debts and who did other detestable things according to other parts of scripture. And more than that, there have been generations of evil rulers before him. Evil was nothing new to Judah. It had permitted 
it had per permeated, it had permeated into their culture. Evil was just a part of their normal lives. It just was. And the Lord did not approve. So King Neb comes along and attacks Judah and takes her as captives. And now they find themselves exiled in a foreign land. Let me keep reading to you. Daniel, Daniel chapter one, verse two. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. The Lord delivered Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. It was the Lord who allowed the siege to happen. The king of Babylon was allowed to overtake Judah because the Lord willed it. It was his plan. And it was a plan that he had been saying would happen. His prophets, prophets plural, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, all had been warning God's people that if they did not return, if they did not churn from their idolatry, that is, if they did not churn from positioning another God, lower G, higher than the one true God, capital G, they would be exiled to Babylon. It, it shouldn't have come as a huge surprise to them. And so now the Israelites find themselves in a place that God had assigned them. In a weird turn of events, through their captivity, the Israelites are now on assignment. And you better believe that God will use them to influence the people right where they are at, exile or not. It's fascinating. Now, I, I know this won't be true of all of us in our current assignments, but I do think it's worth mentioning. And I definitely think that even if it's not our current situation, it very well may have been a past one or it very well may be a future one. Our assignments, the places where we are currently at, might well be because we have been disobedient to God. We, we just have not listened to what he's been asking us to do. I need to say this, but idolatry, placing anything or anyone in a position that is solely reserved for the Lord, will always lead to captivity. It always will. It will always lead to some sort of exile of, of just some place you don't want to be. Always, sis. You, you can count on it. And can, and can we just call this what it is? It's sin. Not listening to God, not following his ways. That's sin. Now, for those of us in Christ, we should know that sin, that sin is a defeated foe. Captivity is temporary. Exile is temporary. Sin will not and does not have the final say and the final victory in our lives. But it may have a temporary one. And there's something else I want you to see. So I'm going to reread verse 2 to you again. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Not only were the people taken captive, but verse 2 tells us that the articles from the temple of God were taken and put in the temple of a Babylonian God. who was no God at all. This is very significant because God, and I'm talking capital G, Yahweh, the real God now, resided among his people in the temple. These articles were sacred, treasured. And, and here we are, here they are, being removed from the temple of the one true God and being placed in a different temple, being subjected to, being forced under a God who is no God at all. What a travesty. 
that something that belonged to the Lord is now being lorded over by a thing that's no Lord. I mean, do you, do you see the irony in this? And here's why this should matter to us. You and I, we are the temple of God now. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Not only will sin lead you to, into captivity, not only will you find yourself exile in a place you don't want to be, but I believe you will also be robbed of something. Just something will be removed from your life. Let me be clear and say that the th that thing is not the Holy Spirit. God will not remove himself from you. That is his promise to you and I. Praise the Lord. But something will be stolen. Maybe it'll be your joy or your peace. Maybe that financial blessing or success that you've been experiencing will be gone. And maybe a friend will be estranged. I do not know what that will be. But I'm asking that if you find yourself being robbed of something, just something is missing, that you go back and see if you can connect it to an area of sin. And, and if so, is it idolatry? It was the Lord who delivered Judah into the hands of the enemy. Why would a loving God do that? I mean, Judah was God's chosen people after all. Why would he do that? And sister, I'll ask, how could he not? It is out of his great love for us that if we are not following him, that if we refuse to listen to him, that it, it, he would pluck us up from the spot we currently find ourselves in, in the mess we have created for ourselves and put us in a completely different environment. Trust me, it will get our attention. I mean, how could he let us stay in complete chaos and devastation? I mean, he'll allow it for a season, but he's just too good to allow it forever. He remains faithful even when we are faithless. Here's what I love the most. Can you believe that not only may God remove you for your own sake, but that then he would use you in a new, pl in a new place to influence others for their sake? I was trying to think about what this could look like in our lives, and, and maybe it's something like this. Your impending divorce currently has you and a child in the middle class, and there's another mama. There's another mama there who needs to know that Jesus loves her too. Or maybe you find yourself doing some jail time because that shoplifting problem finally caught up. And that cellmate of yours, your cellmate, needs to be told that Jesus forgives her too. Maybe you're in a new job because, quite frankly, the old one became everything to you. A god, you might say. But now there are new co-workers there. Maybe it's that hospital bed because that pill overdose didn't work like you thought it would. The medical staff are literally, they would literally be coming to you. And don't you think they need to know that Jesus heals? Listen to me, listen, if you find yourself in a new place like that, removed from the mess that was your life, praise God, praise God. The Israelites know exactly what you're going through. Wherever God has you, however you got there, I want you to know that Jesus intends to make it worth your while. You have an influence there. God intends to reveal his glory right there in that spot. Uh, here's where I want to pause to tell you that that was only two verses, ladies. So I'm going to continue on. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men. 
without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Ah, yes, welcome to Sisterhood, where we talk about dreamy, dreamy godly men who also happen to be princes. I mean, it's the word of God after all. I feel like we can do that. Basically, the king was looking for the best of the best, and this was one difficult job interview. The onboarding process would look like this. Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. He was to feed them the king's food, and they were to train for three years. The Israelite men were to be saturated in Babylonian culture and their political, social, and economic values. They were, for lack of a better way of saying it, to become Babylonians. As one commentary author said, the education was intended to brainwash the youths and make them useful Babylonian servants. So who are these straight from a Hallmark Christmas movie men? Let me introduce you to them in verse six. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. That's interesting. Did you catch it? Their assignments changed their names. No longer were they to be called by their Hebrew names. Now they were to be known as Babylonians. Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. We have to stop and explore this further. Why change their names? I think the reason is this. Our assignments always try to do that. Our assignments always try to change our identities. King Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to get them to forget that they were Hebrews and to remind them that they were now Babylonians. What better way to do that than to change the very thing they're identified by, the very thing people know them as, the thing they are called. I wish I had more time to go into the meanings of, of the names more in depth, but let me just say that the names Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all refer to the character of Yahweh, of Jesus. Collectively, the name means God is gracious and is the judge. The Lord has helped. Who is what God is? But in stark contrast, their new Babylonian names refer to different Babylonian gods. Their God-given names and their Babylonian names are polar opposites of one another. Oh, not your God, but mine. And what it communicates is this. Oh, you are not known by your God. He did not name you. How can he even say who you are? And what I'm saying is, how can you reject that lie if you don't know your God-given name? I want to speak into that in a few minutes, but I want to make sure you hear me say this first. Your assignment will try to change your identity. It will. You, you will be known by a new name. It will accompany you every time you introduce yourself to someone. Names like CEO of, professor of, owner of, doctor, wife, mom. Basically, it's the, uh, my name is, and, but my other name is, or people call me fill in the blank. I, I mean, I did it just tonight when I started this talk. I'm Jennifer and I'm the director of women's ministry. Now it's not all bad, it, it's also informational. I want you to know my name and why I, I'm here talking to you tonight. 
But what can start as information sharing can quickly lead to an identity crisis. If you want to have influence in your assignment, you must first realize that your assignment is trying to have an influence on you. If you don't think your new name affects your identity, then let me ask you this. Do you know who you are if you're not that thing anymore? If you lose your job, if your business closes, if you trade in that title for the important work of being mom, do you know who you are? And lastly, I just think this needs to be said and I, I wanna say it so sensitively. I just, I want you to know my heart in this. I think because we as women are told and believe that we can do anything and accomplish anything that our male counterparts can, that sometimes we get a chip on our shoulders about it. You know, if we accomplish the thing that nobody thinks we can do, it, it carries a lot of weight in our self-worth. It, it gives us a lot of value. Likewise, if we aren't as accomplished or as successful as our male counterparts, or for those of us who are married, dare I say, as accomplished or successful as our husbands, then that also carries a lot of weight in our self-worth. It devalues us. How we perceive others' views of us directly affect how we see ourselves. And no lie is harder to speak into than the lie we believe about ourselves, the things we call ourselves. Sister, I want you to know what Jesus says of you. I want you to know that you are his beloved, Song of Songs 6-3. You are his child, John 1-12. You are his friend, John 15-15. You are alive in Christ, Ephesians 2-5. You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5-17. Hallelujah. You are an heir with Christ, Romans 8-17. You are his saint, 1 Corinthians 1-2. You are his masterpiece, Ephesians 2-10. You are a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3-20. You are more than a conqueror, warrior princess, Romans 8-37. And one of my favorites, you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Colossians 3.12. That is who you are. You are a daughter. You are a daughter. You are a daughter. You are not what your assignment says about you. You are not what others say about you. You're not even what you say about yourself. You are a daughter of the king, and the king says, I will give you an everlasting name that will endure forever. Your God-given name is not changing. Daniel and his men knew who they were. So when a king from another land comes and takes them hostage and gives them a new name and changes everything about them, it does not faze them. And I don't want it to shake you either. But more importantly, I want you to flip the narrative. Instead of being the one who's being influenced, God wants you to be the one doing the influencing and the first way is this. Some things require your intention and your attention. Let me say that again. Some things require your intention and your attention. There are some things you cannot ignore. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. The Israelites were taught a new language. They were taught Babylonian literature, some of which may have directly disputed information that they believed was fact. Likely their appearance would have been changed. 
But the issue of food and drink was highly significant to Daniel. God had previously declared certain foods as unclean, and the royal food was symbolically offered to pagan gods. As one commentator put it, sharing a meal was a sign of a covenant, and Daniel was not prepared to do that. That was a line that Daniel couldn't cross. One of the definitions for the word defile in this verse means pollute. I want us to be women who are able to live in this culture, in this foreign land, and not be polluted by it. Should we discuss some of the types of pollution that we could experience in our assignments? Late work meetings that are actually drunk fests, affairs with coworkers, gossip, foul language, bitterness. The pollution is all around us. How can you avoid it? With resolution, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. It takes courage and determination, and it takes heart. It takes intentionality. You cannot ignore it. And sis, your integrity is on the line. Resolve to follow Jesus. I mean, when was the last time you were truly resolute about anything? Jesus is worthy of that kind of commitment. He is so worthy of it, and the world is watching. And so, Daniel requests to eat only vegetables and drink only water. And although the chief official had sympathy for Daniel and his problem, he feared King Nebuchadnezzar would, and I quote, have his head. And so he denied Daniel's request. It's not easy to follow the Lord. Why didn't the Lord just allow the chief official to simply say yes? I mean, come on, Jesus. This was a trial for Daniel. And trials test our faith. And tests develop perseverance, and perseverance produces spiritual maturity. Consider that, that trials in your assignment, like being told, by an, being told no by your boss, are opportunities to mature as a Christ follower. I love this next part because it's just so real life. Verses 11 and 12 now. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Daniel didn't like the chief official's answer, so he went to someone else. I think that's hilarious and kind of smart. But this time he did change his approach. This time he didn't mention that it was connected to his faith. And he, and he asked to prove to the guard that it would be okay. I, I think so often we think that we have to mention, that we must mention the name of Jesus to share our faith. And in Daniel's case, he's just like, I'll, I'll just show you. I'll show you. Now, now, don't get me wrong. There will come a time when you need to share with others, when you will need to say the name of Jesus, but it doesn't always have to be right away. There's so much power in just showing Jesus to the people in your assignment. By the way, I was totally eating chocolate when I wrote the whole eating only vegetables part. So what is the result of all this? I'm picking up in verse 17 now. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. 
God gave the men knowledge and understanding. And for Daniel, he gave the ability to interpret dreams. But he gave them something even better, a reputation. And that reputation gave them relational equity with the king. That relationship plus their reputation will equal influence. But sis, can, can we just take a moment to be reminded that their influence didn't come easily? They were captives, exiled. They endured a rigorous selection and training process. They were renamed. And they had to eat only vegetables for 10 days. I mean, that might be the worst one. Influence in our assignments isn't just given to us. It, it does not come easily. It requires a lifestyle of trusting God, of following God. It requires a lifestyle of prayer and of being in Christian community. You need Christian community if you're going to eat vegetables only for 10 days. And you're going to need Christian community when the trials at your assignment are testing and stretching your faith. What began as a place of exile is now the place of great influence, a place where God's name and his renown will be made known. So here's what happens next, chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, I like to refer him as King Neb. It's completely off point, but still I like it. King Neb has a dream that disturbs him so much it causes him to be unable to sleep. And he summons all his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. The king summons all his wise men and asks them to not only interpret his dreams, but to also tell him what that dream was. By the way, he does not call Daniel the one who can interpret dreams and is 10 times better than all the other wise men. I don't know why the king doesn't ask for Daniel, but I do know this. God is setting up this story in a big way, and he is about to reveal just how magnificent he really is. In fact, Daniel finds out about the king's dream because the king is furious that no wise men are able to tell him his dream, and he orders all of them to be killed. So the commander of the king's guard comes looking for Daniel and his friends. Daniel's response to the commander gives us some very practical Christian how-to advice. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a hard decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. We will definitely need to deploy both wisdom and tact when confronting people in our assignments who have the power to destroy us. I mean, one without the other isn't enough. I admire Daniel's courage to ask for an explanation. Then notice what Daniel does next. He leaves the commander and boldly goes to the king to ask for more time. I say boldly because remember, the king had ordered him to be dead. I mean, that takes guts. Daniel leveraged his relational equity with the king to buy him more time. Daniel's reputation is on the line. God's reputation is on the line. I love that Daniel asked for time. It's just so stinking practical. We have to carefully use the opportunities that are given to us. So ask for more time. And when you are given it, here's how you should use it. Verses 17. 
Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning his, this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Daniel rounds the troops. Him and his friends pray. They plead for mercy. They plead for their lives. And then God reveals the mystery of the dream to Daniel. And Daniel praises him. Listen, you have a major influence in your assignment through the mere fact that you can pray for the people there. You can pray that God would reveal wisdom and insight and creativity and solutions there. You can praise God and believe that he is sorting things out in your assignment even before he does it. So ask for more time and then use it to seek the Lord. So now Daniel must return to the king. And we're, we're skipping a few verses now and going to verses 26. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And then Daniel proceeds to tell the king what his dream was about and then interprets it for him. And here's the thing. We've been waiting for this moment in Daniel's story. And for some of us, we are waiting for it in our own stories. The moment that God's name is revealed. Now I can't, but God can. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who can. A very simple way to influence people at work or the, or the place where you volunteer or the grocery store or the post office is to say, I can't, but there's a God who can. You and I cannot, but we can lead them to the one who can. Praise you, Jesus. Here is King Neb's dream, starting in verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken to pieces in the same time and, and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel interprets the statue in the dream to indicate different kingdoms on earth. None of the kingdoms will stand except for the rock. And the rock, not cut out by human hands, Daniel says this about it in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. 
I'm hoping you're seeing how this is going to end. We're headed to the New Testament, Matthew 16, 18. This is Jesus talking here. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And one more to the very last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom that King Neb saw destroy all the others and endure forever and fill the whole earth is that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's amazing. But in order for us to have heard those words, Daniel and his friends first needed the boldness to seek the Lord. They, they needed the bravery that what is required in believing in him. And they had to have the courage and the confidence it takes to be used by him. Some of the greatest words in all this book are found right here. It is not a question as to whether or not Jesus's kingdom will last forever. It is a promise that it will. It is a promise. And I don't know about you, but having that promise gives me so much hope. It encourages me to be influential in the places God has for me. It's a promise. Even if my identity is shaken, I know that God's reign will never end. Even if I'm in exile, I know that his kingdom endures forever. I can be brave and bold because Jesus is on his throne and he's not coming off. He is never not going to be king. Praise you, Jesus. All right, that would have been a good stopping point. But we have to read on. We have to. So we're back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. And let's finish this thing up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. Then he said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men who, by the way, have their life because of Daniel's actions. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. When you let God reveal himself through you, he will be acknowledged as God of gods and Lord of kings. He will be praised. And you, you will be better poised, better than ever, to continue the influence in your assignment. I like happy endings, don't you? That's how chapter two ends for us. Chapter three, though, in chapter three, King Neb forgets who's king. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will have their faith tested again. Literally, their, their faith will be put to the fire. But they will not be alone. It is one of my favorites in all the Bible. Sister, if you need a reminder of how God shows up for you, go and see in Daniel chapter 3. I want to end by praying Daniel's prayer of praise when God revealed the mystery of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. Will you pray with me? Jesus, praise be the name of God forever and ever. 
wisdom and power are yours. You change time and seasons. You dispose kings and raise up others. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. You reveal deep and hidden things. You know it lies in darkness and light dwells within you. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given us wisdom and power. You have given us the ability and the opportunity to be used by you. May we boldly follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Be bold enough to use your voice and brave enough to listen to your heart. I was leading worship that Sunday morning and I had so much anxiety and so much fear and so much pressure. Um, but I got up on stage. Luckily, I was able to wear a baseball hat so I could just pull down so I didn't have to see anybody but I knew that God was calling me to be brave. God was calling me to be in front of that group of people. And I remember thinking, if I can stand up here and be brave, there's no reason that they couldn't. And so I stood up on that stage. All of a sudden the music started and I had my ears in and I just closed my eyes 
and I sang and my hand was holding the microphone and my hand was shaking and I just remember all of a sudden this peace came over me. My eyes were closed and it was just me and God and I was worshiping and it was beautiful. But if I hadn't had this courage and I knew that God was gonna be with me, I never would have been able to get up there. Nothing is greater than being unapologetically you. Don't live life to impress others. Boldly live your dreams. There's areas in all of our lives where God is calling us to be bold. And sometimes all we have to do is just make a choice, make a decision uh, to take that step forward, to take that step towards what God has, the plan that he has for our life. Being brave sometimes means calling people out when they say things that hurt you. When searching for the next king of Israel, Samuel and Jesse thought God was going to reveal the biggest and brightest. They didn't even think to put David in the lineup. What made David step up and fight the giant? Something bigger than his circumstances was driving him. The same confidence that is available to us today. You make me brave. You Crashes over me, crashes over me.